It was game four of the 1945 World Series between the Chicago Cubs and the Detroit Tigers. And Billy Cianis, a Greek immigrant who owned the Billy Goat Tavern, had two box seats for the game, $7.20. It was a lot of money in 1945. And on a lark, Cianis decided to take along the tavern's mascot, his pet goat named Murphy. And on the goat, he'd put a blanket. And on the blanket, he'd taped a sign or pinned a sign that said, We got Detroit's goat. And amazingly enough, Cianis and Murphy were, uh, Murphy the goat, were allowed onto Wrigley Field, even paraded around the field before the game began. And the ushers came and, 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 uh, and took them off the field. And at some point after that, there was this heated argument about whether or not the goat could stay. But finally, the ushers let Cianis and his goat, Murphy, go to their box seats. But at some point during the game, Cianis and Murphy were ejected on direct orders of Cubs owner Philip K. Wrigley due to the animal's objectionable odor. Cianis was outraged. Incensed that the Cubs organization had insulted his goat. And so allegedly, he placed the curse of the billy goat on the Cubs. He said they would never win another pennant or play in a World Series game at Wrigley Field. Now, at that point in the 1945 series, the Cubs were up two games to one over the Tigers. But they went on to lose that game four and, in fact, lost the series. Which prompted Cianis to send Wrigley a telegram that said, Who stinks now? Now, you say, Pastor Scott... Do you believe in, in those kind of curses? Well, you think I'm some kind of nut? But let me tell you this. The Cubs haven't won a pennant and haven't played in a World Series since 1945. In a passage of Scripture that we want to look at today in Galatians, it talks a lot about curses. In fact, you probably want to go ahead and turn over there to Galatians chapter 3. If you brought a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the, the verses will be up on the screen so you can follow along and also on the back of the notes page, the message notes page that was in your bulletin, the scriptures are listed there as well. I apologize for that small print, but we had to try to fit them all on the page there. I want you to notice as we go along here in just a moment how many times the word curse shows up in those verses. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3 where, where Paul reminds the Galatians that their salvation, that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that the work of the Holy Spirit, the miracles and the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives was not because of their work. It was not because of the things that they were doing. It was because of their faith in the gospel. Because of their belief that salvation is by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul is going to do something amazing. He's going to show that in the life of the Old Testament patriarch, the same kind of faith was in operation. Let's look at, uh, we'll pick up in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Um, Entire passage, it's a little lengthy, just follow along. We'll come back and work our way back through it as we go this morning. 
in the same way. Now, again, Paul begins that way because he's telling them in the same way that your faith is what is, has produced your salvation. Your faith is what has uh, produced the Holy Spirit's work in your life. The same thing's true now about Abraham. So verse 6, in the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share in the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Verse 10, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, curse is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham. So that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. We're in a series of messages uh, this summer through the, in the New Testament book of Galatians that we're calling Freedom. Because the central theme, or the, the central verse in the, in the book of Galatians, the verse that kind of sums up what the entire book is about, is found in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 where it says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. And the whole theme of chapter 3, which... Uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you now, we're going to spend eight, nine weeks in Galatians. This is our fourth week. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 3. And the whole theme of chapter 3 is that living under law makes us slaves. But living in grace sets us free. Performance-based religion may make us feel good about ourselves, but it actually puts us in bondage, the very opposite of freedom. Now, there's a common misconception in the church about sharing the gospel. We think that sharing the gospel is something that we do only with lost people, right? People who aren't saved, people who haven't placed their faith in Christ. But in this passage, in chapter 3, in fact, over and over again in the book of Galatians, Paul returns to the gospel message. He keeps on sharing the gospel, constantly reminding the people and us that salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. That message, the gospel message, as I have told you many times before, is not just to get us started in the Christian life. It is to sustain us and take us through the Christian life. We need the gospel not just to be saved, but to live every day after we're saved. We have to constantly be reminded this whole thing is not about us and our work and what we do. It's about grace by faith. So today we're going to see Paul reach way back 4,000 years at that point to the story of Abraham. 
and paint a picture of saving faith. And then he's going to show us how Jesus breaks the curse. And we're going to see that this morning, and hopefully this all pulls together by the time we get to the end by looking at three critical, important truths. And here's the first one. Abraham is our example of living by faith. We don't have to look any farther for an example of living by faith than Abraham. Verse 7 says, the real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. Now, if you ever went to Sunday school, if you ever went to vacation Bible school, if you ever found yourself at church camp when you were a kid, you probably sang, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. <laughs> I mean, by the time you got done with right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, chin up, chin down, stand up, sit down, you were tired. I think that's why they made us sing it, just to, just to exhaust us so that we'd go to sleep. But the truth about that song is found in Galatians 3.7. Every one of us who puts our faith in God are children of Abraham. Abraham's the father of faith, or the father of those who live by faith. Now, just a quick recap, Abraham's story. He lived in a place called Ur. They were real creative with their place names back then. I think that that place must have been named by one of my fellow Southerners. You know, this is a nice place. We ought to just stay here. Well, okay, what are we going to call it? Ur. Uh, you know, I don't know. But... It was in modern-day Iraq. God goes to him in Ur and says, Now, I'm sending you to a new land. But here's the deal. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to tell you the name of it. I'll show it to you at the proper time. And you know what happened? Abraham picked up and he left. On that word. It took big-time faith for Abraham to leave without knowing where he was going. None of us would do that. Man, when I'm going somewhere, when I go to Lafayette, I plot it out on Google Maps and get my GPS because if I don't, my wife will back me up on this. I will get lost. I, you, know what, you know what my wife says most commonly in the car other than what's that smell or um, you're going too fast is you should have turned back there. God told Abraham to go and he went. Just go. I'm not going to tell you where. At the proper time, I'll show you, but I want you to go. And I want you to know this, too. It wasn't just a one-time act of faith. It, it, Abraham had to keep the faith for years and years and years. He had to keep on believing God for decades. Because when he and Sarah were both approaching 100 years old, the child that had been promised to them still hadn't come. Abraham had to keep on believing God's promise that he would have so many descendants that they would outnumber the stars. And he had to keep believing it for years and years and years and years without seeing any of it come to pass. But God always keeps his promise. And eventually, there was a little baby named Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. Because 90-year-old Sarah just threw her head back and laughed when the angel said, you're going to have a baby. By faith, 
Abraham saw the promise come true. But I'm going to tell you that the hardest test that he ever faced, the hardest thing Abraham ever faced in his life was when God tested his faith. When God said, take your only son, Isaac, your son who has fulfilled the promise, your son through whom I told you that all those descendants were going to come, I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And you talk about radical faith. So just like he left his home not knowing where he was going, he took his son up on Mount Moriah. And he prepares an altar there. And he puts the, that precious son, the son of the promise, on the altar and raises the knife to take his life. And an angel of the Lord stops his hand. And there's a, there's a ram caught in the thorns and the thistles. And that ram is sacrificed in Isaac's place. Isaac walked up that hill destined to die, but he walked back down alive because a lamb was sacrificed in his place. Now, you've heard me say it before. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything. People can turn it and twist it and try to make it say all kinds of things and try to make it match up with today's headlines. But I'm telling you, the entire Old Testament points to one person, and that's Jesus. And this is no exception. This is a, a prophecy. This event is a prophecy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because the hill where Jesus died was only a few hundred feet from where Isaac was laid on the altar. Just like Isaac, Jesus walked up that hill destined to die, but he had no substitute. He was our substitute. And like a living Isaac, Jesus walked down that hill alive after God raised him from the dead. You know, if we're honest, we'll admit we don't like this story very much. It just kind of grates on us, doesn't it? What, what kind of God are you who would ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Well, the short answer is the same kind of God who would sacrifice his only son on the same hill. God knew Isaac wasn't going to die. But sometimes, you know what our objection is? It's Abraham. What kind of father are you? To even consider killing your son. I mean, somewhere there's got to be a line, right? God, I, I followed you out here in the middle of nowhere, not knowing where I was going. And, 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 you know, I followed you by faith all these years, decades. But this is my son. This is the child of the promise. God, right here, I can't, I can't cross that line. I can't do that. But the Bible answers that question in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. It says this, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Now watch this. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. That's radical faith. Radical faith is Abraham believing, even if I kill my son on God's direction, God will raise him from the dead. 
Some translations. In Galatians 3, verse 6, say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, there's a word most of us understand, right? Credited. You know, I, I don't have any cash on me. But after church today, I, I can go in the restaurant and eat lunch. And when I'm done and it's time to, to pay up, settle up, I can take a little plastic card out of my wallet and I can kind of hand it to the, to the waitress and I can say, I, I don't have any money, but these people, they'll pay you. Right? you the, this bank somewhere will pay you for this food. And the restaurant will swipe that card and if I've, been, you know, if I've kept up on my bills and I'm not over my credit limit in just a few seconds, it's going to say, Approved! It's like magic, <laughs> except you've got to pay for it eventually, you know. But now, what if I got my credit card statement one month, and it had a notation on it that said, credited to your account, $40 million. Whew. Well, after I came to, I'm sure that I would think it was a mistake. This can't be right, so I call the bank. And they tell me that once a year, Warren Buffett randomly deposits money to some stranger's account, and I am this year's lucky winner. Wow. What am I going to do with $40 million? I'd probably put some new tires on the van, you know? <laughs> Switch to the name brand peanut butter. I don't know. We're simple people. But in order to access the $40 million that's credited to me, I have to exercise faith, don't I? I have to believe that, that Warren Buffett is real, that he exists, that he has the resources to transfer that amount of money into my account. But listen, I wouldn't be demonstrating my faith until I actually spent the money, some of the money, right? When we believe God, he credits our spiritual account with something a billion times more valuable than money. He credits our spiritual account with the righteousness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So we're called to do what Abraham did. Believe God. Uh, act in faith on the truth that we know. Like truth number two. Truth number two is that living by rules is a curse because it's impossible. Living by rules is a curse because it's impossible. In verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said... Those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. The reality is that trying to earn righteousness by keeping the Old Testament law is like trying to climb two steep hills. And the first hill is called continuous hill. Because if we're going to try to live by the rules, we've got to do it all the time. It can't be hit or miss. We can't do it on Sunday and then not do it the rest of the week. 
We have to obey them every second of every day of our lives. The second hill is called everything hill because it's not a matter of just keeping the Ten Commandments. If we're going to try to to live by law, we've got to keep all of it, every single bit of it. We've got to obey not just the ones we think we can manage. I mean, you know, there's a few that I don't have to worry that much about. I'm not likely to pick up a rock and stone my child to death when he disobeys me. I can kind of set that one aside, can't I? I'm not too worried about in what order or what particular way I wash a dish or a cup. See, we set aside some of the rules and just take on the ones we think we can manage. There's no, the only problem with that is there's no biblical basis for doing that. The law is the law. It's a unit. It rises or falls together. There's no such thing in the Scripture as ceremonial law and moral law. Okay, selling you, Being allowed to sell your daughter into slavery. Tell me, is that ceremonial or moral law? I don't know. Here's the truth. Nobody can climb those hills. Nobody. In fact, Paul says that basically the only thing the Old Testament law does is show us that we can't keep it. Allow me to illustrate. Now, if some of you have heard this a few years ago, you've got to play along, okay? Don't, don't mess this up for those who haven't heard it, okay? Because I have an extremely important instruction for every person in this room. For the next few minutes, under no circumstances, are you allowed to touch the chair that is in front of you? You are absolutely not to touch the chair that's in front of you. You who are right here on the front row, you can't touch the chair that's beside you. Okay? You can only be in one chair. I don't want you to touch it with your, your finger or your hand. I don't want you to touch it with your foot. You are forbidden from touching the chair that is in front of you. Are we clear? Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. You see, just a moment ago, the last thing in the world you had any interest in doing was touching the chair that is in front of you. And some of you are just right now, you're itching to reach out and touch that chair just to show me that you can do it anyway. Hey, tell on your neighbor. Who reached up and touched the chair when I said don't touch it? Tell on them. I see you pointing a couple people. Yeah? (laughs) See, as soon as my law got in your head, it aroused in you the desire to do the very thing I ask you not to do. My law exposed our basic rebellious nature. It's the way we're wired. Any prohibition appeals to our flesh to break the rules. Man, how many times have you walked past a door or a wall that had a wet, a wet paint sign on it? And what did you do? Yeah, yeah, you did. The same thing I do. I don't look... Oh, man. That's what the Old Testament law does. It tells us what's wrong. It says don't do this, but it only makes us want to try it. 
I don't think it's by accident that the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, the very last word in the Old Testament sums up the entire message of the law. If you're ever on Jeopardy and the answer is, this is the last word in the Old Testament, you can correctly respond, what is curse, Alex? Because the last word, the last verses of the Old Testament are in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. It says this, remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The end of part one. See, the message of the Old Testament is this. You keep the law, you'll be okay. You disobey it at any point, and you're cursed. Legalism has no wiggle room for our mistakes. If we break the rules, we will be broken by the rules. The law is hard and fast. The life has to be lived strictly by the rules, no wiggle room. And we can't do it. No one can. No one can. Only one man ever has. And that's what makes truth number three so important. We are rescued when we trust in Jesus who took our curse. We're rescued when we trust in Jesus who took our curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul said, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the Scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You notice the word us in that verse? Who is the us? Well, that's you and me, isn't it? But does that mean that everyone on the planet will be rescued? No. It does not. Jesus died for the sins of everyone in the world, but the Bible teaches that only those who trust him will be saved. Let me ask you this. Are you in the us? Turn to your neighbor and ask him, are you in the us? Because if you're not in the us, you better get to the cross. Because that's the only place to be saved. There's another baseball curse you may have heard about. The curse of the Bambino. In 1919, the Boston Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. The Red Sox had won five world championships before they sold the Bambino to the Yankees. But then they went for almost nine decades without winning the World Series. Can anybody say Bill Buckner? Yeah. You chuckle, you know who that is, right? You know what that's about. But in 2004, the curse of the Bambino was broken. Red Sox were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. They were down three games to nothing, three games to none. And they made an amazing comeback, swept the next four games, won the World Series. The curse was broken. So they say. The truth is, the curse of the Billy Goat, the curse of the Bambino, those are just sports superstitions. But the curse of sin is very real. Disobedience to the law carries a curse. And without Jesus, we're all cursed. 
at the cross, the only man who ever kept the law, the only man who ever lived a sinless life, chose to take our curse on himself when he took on our sins. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 24, he, Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Dr. Ray Pritchard is a great Bible teacher and preacher, one of my personal favorites. He has very graphically described what happened when Jesus took our curse. Allow me to quote him. Imagine that somewhere in the universe there is a cesspool containing all the sins that have ever been committed. The cesspool is deep, dark, indescribably foul. Then imagine that a river of filth constantly flows into that cesspool, replenishing the vile mixture with all the evil done every day. And now imagine that while Jesus was on the cross, that cesspool is emptied onto him. The flow never seems to stop. It is vile, toxic, deadly, filled with disease, pain, and suffering. No wonder God the Father turned away from the sight. All the lust in the world was there. All the murder. All the hatred between people. All the pornography. All the drunkenness. All the bitterness. All the greed. All the crime. All the cursing. Every vile deed, every wicked thought, every vain imagination, all of it was laid upon Jesus when he hung on the cross. The last word of the Old Testament is what? Curse. But I'm thankful for a God who was willing to let his son be subject to the cesspool of the filth of my sin and your sin so that things could be made right between us and him. In the very last chapter of the Bible are these powerful words in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. No longer will there be a curse on any. Most of us struggle with the concept of grace, as I said a little while ago, because we feel better about ourselves if we can do something to earn God's favor. Tullian Chivijan writes, grace is counterintuitive. It is priceless and yet totally free, and left to ourselves, we hate it. Grace is counterintuitive. That means the idea of grace goes against our human nature. Everything in us says, do more, try harder, be better, work hard, earn acceptance from God. But salvation is not by trying, it's by trusting. Max Lucado once said that being a parent is better than any theology book. He said that the family is God's theological laboratory. I, I, I agree with that. I found it to be true in my life. And I was thinking the other day about when my kids were little and I was, would give them a bath. 
And, and I would wash their hair with that, with that baby shampoo. And let me just tell you that no more tears is a lie. And I would use a cup to rinse off their little heads, right? And I said what every parent says. What do you tell them? Look up. Look up. Look up and let me get the soap off of you. This, and then it won't get in your eyes. But that goes against human nature. Our natural response when someone pours water on us is to, to look down. Our natural response when the soap is streaming down our face is to rub our eyes, which rubs the soap into our eyes. And that starts to cry. You know, they, maybe if they called it no more sobs, I could go with that. Well, when my kids did that, it was, it was a little frustrating. You know, I, I remember thinking, why don't you just trust me and keep looking up? If you had done that, you wouldn't have gotten soap in your eyes. You see, what was happening is they were, they were doing their own thing instead of trusting me. They were trying their own way instead of trusting me. And sometimes I wonder if God thinks the same thing about us. If he ever says, look up. Look up. I can remove the curse if you'll stop trying to. Did you know thorns grow on every continent of the world except Antarctica? And that's because in Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam and Eve that part of the, the curse of sin was that thorns and thistles would infest the ground, would grow and infest the ground everywhere. Those thorns represent a broken relationship between man and God. Now think back. When Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, there was a ram caught in the what? In the thorns. That sacrificial ram who became a substitute for Isaac was literally wearing a crown of thorns. Years later, when Jesus walked up another part of that same mountain, he also wore a crown of thorns. When he walked up that hill to be our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was wearing a crown of thorns. And 2,000 years later, we know that when Jesus wore that crown and died on the cross, he took away the curse of sin. The rest of Galatians, or I'm sorry, of Romans chapter 5, verse 20. We read the first half just a few moments ago. The last part of it says, But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Thank God that it did. We can only be free when we stop our religious effort, when we stop trying and start trusting God to save us. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.